Hello and welcome back to part two of Pyrrhus. We can dive right in since this is a part two episode and you already know why you're listening to the Plutarch podcast and who you're here for. Surprisingly, we're here really as much for Pyrrhus as we are for the Romans. He's going to give us a great transition from Pyrrhic victory to Roman virtue. But let's dive right in. Speaking of Roman virtue, we were last talking about Fabricius. So Fabricius is now consul, but Fabricius does Pyrrhus one more favor, and he Fabricius finds out that Pyrrhus' doctor is in a plot to poison him. And Fabricius warns him and tells him that he needs to pick better doctors. So in gratitude, Pyrrhus does send the Roman prisoners back now, fully freed, with Cineus to attempt another peace negotiation. The Romans will not accept their prisoners for free, so they exchange an equal number of Samnite and Tarentine prisoners and again ask Pyrrhus to leave Italy before speaking of peace and friendship. So we do get another Pyrrhic victory at a battle called Asculum, where the elephants again do a bit of damage. The virtue of the Romans, right, being able to stand your ground against an elephant doesn't do anything other than get you crushed. But his allies, Pyrrhus' allies, are starting to grow cold, and the Romans just seem to keep coming. At this point, a new project looms on the horizon, and the Sicilians come from Agrigento, that's southern Sicily, the same city that had been repopulated several generations before under Timoleon, asking him to help Agrigento, Syracuse, and Leontini to drive the Carthaginians out of the island. An opportunity! An opportunity to do what Timoleon had almost perfectly done, but Timoleon declared a peace treaty, right? An opportunity to do what Dion had sort of managed to do from Syracuse here. Pyrrhus is going to perfect the original project for Sicilian freedom. But there's another opportunity for him to be king in Macedonia again. He's offered both of these, one to punch, and he wavers, not sure which one to accept. But either way, he is almost sure that he's going to pull out of Italy. So he leaves a garrison in Tarentum, and now the Tarentines are just annoyed with him. They think he should either completely leave, that is, don't leave your soldiers here, or completely win. And he basically just tells him to be quiet, and he sails away. So by 278, he's in Sicily, taking over most of the cities who had promised themselves to him. He also vows to Hercules that he would institute games in his honor if Hercules helped him win the battles. And so he's able to be the first to not just lead the charge, but the first to climb over a wall. And so virtue is called the divine help, or according to Homer, comes from divine help and frenzy. Both of these words give us English words, which I thought were fun. So divine help is enthusiasmos. Enthusiodes is how uh, the adjective turns out in Plutarch. But 
That means to have a God within. En theos, right? Enthusiasm. And that frenzy word is manikas or manic. Maniac also comes from this word. And so he seems to be able not only to mount the wall and land in the city first, but to be just surrounded by dead bodies and himself remain unwounded. It's pretty cool. So after capturing the city of Eryx, he sacrifices spectacularly to Hercules in Thanksgiving. But we have a problem. So he seems to have whirlwinded into Sicily and taken care of it. But there's these Mamertines hanging around, the sons of Mars, and they're wreaking havoc in pursuit of spoils and treasure. You can think of the Mamertines as consistent land-based pirates in the island of Sicily. There's so much wealth in Sicily that the Mamertines just wait for the people to do the hard work and store up the wealth for them, and then they can just steal it and light people on fire and run away. So Pyrrhus conquers them and destroys some of their fortified locations. So it's kind of a Pompey parallel there. We'll see Pompey rid the Mediterranean of pirates and keep the Mediterranean safe for Roman commerce. But he will not negotiate peace with the Carthaginians until the Carthaginians leave Sicily. Unfortunately, while that would have been a strong negotiating tactic if the Sicilians had stayed on his side, the way he treats the Sicilians makes them angry with him. He starts forcibly recruiting oarsmen for his galleys because he's really not going to beat the Carthaginians without a navy. And as we saw, his original navy was pretty much wrecked on his way to Tarentine. I think two ships survived. And so he's down here in Sicily going to try to cut the Carthaginians off from their own land. And you can't do that without a navy. But he has to forcibly recruit these men, impress them into service. And then they can't handle his military intensity and they consider him faithless as he shifts from demagogue to tyrant. There comes a breaking point and the Greeks in Sicily ultimately hate him. Even to the point of, and this is weird, you wonder what did he do? Plutarch's not clear on this. But even to the point of calling on the Carthaginians and the Mamertines to help get rid of Pyrrhus. This is that one bully versus the other bully problem. And at this point, the Tarentines say that the war is going really badly and they need him back in Italy. Again, he sails away from Sicily, having sort of conquered it, kind of, but there's another Pyrrhic victory. And on his way out, the Mamertines and the Carthaginians are already closing on him to a point that a Mamertine, who's huge, apparently, we're just told that he's a big guy, challenges Pyrrhus to show himself after Pyrrhus had already sustained a wound to the head. And this is crazy. Another 1v1, right? Pyrrhus forces his way through the troops. He's stained with blood, already has that awkward jawline and crazy smile. And before the Mamertine could even raise his sword to finish his strike, Pyrrhus sliced him clean through with the sword so that his body fell into two halves right there. Now, I'm thinking this was a sword strike left to right, and hopefully he cut him somewhere through the lower spine. Maybe I'm overthinking this. I don't know. It is almost certainly not a top to bottom cutting him in half. I've just had students misunderstand that and be really impressed at Pyrrhus' superhuman strength. I think it's possible. Not going to try this at home. Don't recommend that you do either. But I think it is possible with enough anger and adrenaline and to slice through someone in half the other way. Anyway, I don't know. The doctors out there can tell me whether or not that's true. The spine is pretty powerful, so if he hit it in exactly the right spot. 
The Mamertines, not surprisingly, fall back. This general, who had just been threatened, managed to take out their biggest Mamertine in one blow and managed to cut him into two pieces. So Pyrrhus, though harmed, wounded, even in the head, is able to fall back and escape from Sicily. And so Pyrrhus returns to an Italy in which he is less popular than when he left. So many of his allies lost respect for him when he decided to flit on over to Sicily that when he comes back, he finds himself with fewer allies than he originally had. And if we remember the Tarentine response even to his first arrival was not exactly a party and will do whatever you say. He essentially had to create a military dictatorship in Tarentum and force the Tarentines to do the fighting that they had hoped they were just going to be able to pay him to do. So from Tarentum, he finds himself camped at a place called Malaventum near not one, but two Roman consuls. Pyrrhus has to split his army into two sections because the Roman each Roman consul is leading a different army and he wants to deal with them separately, not together. And they're camped near this place that, according to the Livy story, is called Malaventum. It might be an Oscan name, which is a dialect or a language closely related to Latin, but not actually Latin. At any rate, we'll see that the victory is so great here, the Romans are going to change that Malaventum, which sounds like what you think it is, bad outcome, to Beneventum. And that town is still Benevento to this very day, which is pretty cool. At any rate, he tries to break his camp at night and move with his most experienced troops in the forest, but they're marching in the dark and his men grow lost. And so by daybreak, the Romans are able to clearly see them coming. This is bad news because it means that Pyrrhus's divide and conquer technique has failed him and his men are all spread out and not in battle order as the Romans do fall on him under the consul Manius Curius. And they're even able to not just put them to flight and rout, but capture some of the elephants as well. They push the battle onto the plains, and now the other Roman camp is able to join the fray because of where the battle has been pushed to. Um, the elephants are then used finally to the Romans' advantage and are pushed back into the ranks of the Epirotes. And so this victory, according to Plutarch, sets the Romans up to complete their conquest of Italy and even add Sicily shortly after. Beneventum indeed. So after wasting six years, Plutarch's words, not mine, on these campaigns, he won neither Sicily nor Italy. And yet, and yet, his spirit had not been conquered. In spite of the play of Nexia, I think Plutarch has some admiration for that level. How much can you lose before you give up? And why do you give up in the face of loss? Hmm. Good questions to ask ourselves. He was still considered the best in military skill. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? That the number one is Alexander, and that's obvious because he's undefeated. But the number two is hardly, hardly undefeated. And we're going to see exactly where he ends still. But his military skill, his personal involvement, which is just translated in one Greek word there, cheri, 
He goes in by hand. He does war by hand. And his daring are what wins him renown. It isn't really his deeds. It's how he does them. Antigonus earlier in his career had compared him to a gambler. So willing to bet big, then you can win big. So now he's really looking at Macedonia again. He's falling on this Macedonian opportunity, but he makes a few weird mistakes. One is he plunders the graves and tombs of former Macedonian kings, and allowing his men to do that while throwing away the bones is, well, that's a sacrilege from almost any perspective. So he has now lost any respect the Macedonians might personally have for him, and at that point, another opportunity comes up to help out Sparta. A Spartan envoy named Cleonymus comes to him, and he wants to get his throne back. Now, we shouldn't trust Cleonymus because Plutarch tells us that he's violent and arbitrary. By the way, the translation of violent is bios, that's fine. But arbitrary means monarchikos, right? He rules like a monarch, even though Sparta has never been a monarchy. There are always two kings in the constitution of Sparta. And so Cleonymus, who's even hated by his own wife, another uh, red flag there from Plutarch, gets Pyrrhus involved in the domestic and political troubles of Sparta. And he arrives in Laconia and does, again, the same thing. He's treating his men and leading his men like a mercenary soldier. They begin to plunder Sparta. When the Spartans are annoyed at this, he reminds them that this is the one tactic he learned from them, not announcing their plans beforehand. So Pyrrhus has very quickly rolled into Laconia, and he's ready to take Sparta. But he doesn't want his soldiers to sack it at night. Perhaps he learned something from the Battle of Beneventum, and this is the first time, really, and don't worry, we're close to the end, that he has shown any amount of caution in his life. So he shows that caution, and he thinks, all right, don't sack it at night. We'll, we'll get some good rest and sack it in the morning. But this one night makes all the difference. Their king, their other king, remember, because they had two kings, Cleonymus, but their other king is in Crete, helping the Gortinians. Weird parallel with the life of Agesilaus. The Cretans and the Spartans have always been close, and some of the Spartan kings even claim descendancy from the same people as from Crete. But Pyrrhus sets up camp, and at this point, the Spartans are pulling an all-nighter. The women get, and the men, everyone gets involved. Everyone's doing their work, young and old. They dig a trench parallel with the camp as Pyrrhus has set it and they sink as many wagons as they can on the edges of the trench. This means that they can fight on the side of their trench. Remember, Sparta does not have a wall. It has never needed to have a wall. There's a famous saying from the lives of Agesilaus and Lycurgus where a Spartan is asked, where is the Spartan wall? And he points to his spear. Remember that from way back when? Yeah. So they need this trench to give them any amount of space. Otherwise, the elephants will literally just rampage through the streets of Sparta. And the wagons on either end prevent the, remember, Laconia is a relatively narrow valley. And so the wagons probably allow them not to be end-rounded by the elephants and the cavalry. So they're making something that can't be jumped and that cannot be easily trampled. And they all have to work, and they make a trench nine feet wide, six feet deep, and 800 feet long. 
according to Plutarch's measurements. And then at dawn, the women armed the men, so the young men, they actually allowed to rest for some of the night because they wanted them to be able to defend the trench. So there were women digging these holes, young and old women digging these holes, and then they order the young men to defend the trench, reminding them that it would be glorious to die in the arms of your wives and mothers, and sweet to die while your fatherland was watching. So... The Spartans have gotten used to the fact that they are not the number one polis, even militarily anymore. They are second rate when compared to the Macedonians. But this is their one last opportunity, breathe a last gasp of freedom, if not straight victory that they can capitalize on. Pyrrhus attacks the trench, while his son, Ptolemy, right, his oldest son, named after the Egyptian leader, tries to go around it to where the wagons are buried. And really, it's a hard fight. They're not gaining much ground. This trench was a nice equalizer. One Spartan with 300 men, that normal mystical Spartan number of magic awesomeness, actually manages to sneak around using the mountain passes to the back of Ptolemy and takes down his barbarian mercenaries. So that's rough. And the only thing that ends this battle is night falling. They fought hard fight, hard slog all day, and Pyrrhus has a dream that he threw a thunderbolt at Sparta and lit it on fire. And so at that, he listens to the dream and he orders his men, we're going to take Sparta, men. But then he quotes and adapts one of Hector's most famous ill-omened lines that's weird to me because it's about poorly reading omens. So it's proved to me that while the Greeks really did consider Homer to be an education, Sometimes these out-of-context quotes means you're like, when was the last time? Yeah, I realize you've memorized a lot of Homer, but when was the last time you read Book 12? Because in Book 12, Hector says, the greatest omen is to fight for your country, and then they're going to attack it. And so you're like, well, one, that omen by itself can be read both ways. The Spartans are fighting for their country too. And two, Hector is at the high watermark, and everything goes downhill from here, right? It gets worse, not better because in part of this misreading of the omen. But anyway, the Spartans defend themselves, and the king of the Spartans manages to return with 2,000 men, as well as a general of Antigonus. So you get the involvement of the other kings, and the Spartans can actually defend themselves with all of their men. And so the women can fall back and take care of the elderly, sick, and wounded all of whom had basically been at the front lines. So Pyrrhus is forced to fall back from Sparta, and he now just looks around for something else to do, always swirling from one hope to another, says Plutarch. And he heads up to Argos. It's not a far march, but he's harassed by the Spartan king, the one who had returned, because they want to make sure that Pyrrhus doesn't think that he can just roll into Sparta anytime he wants. And as they fight their way up these valleys... The Spartan king manages to surround Pyrrhus' son, Ptolemy, and kill him. He's stabbed by a Cretan. That is a person from Crete, not a Cretan. Pyrrhus, having just learned of his son's death, marches back, right, turns his cavalry around, and descends on the Spartans in this crazy melee, and he spears the leader of the Spartan band, Evalchus, and kills every Spartan with him in this small raiding party, almost single-handedly the spartans had won but lost all these men i just couldn't help myself but think is this a pyrrhic victory inflicted by pyrrhus (laughs) ha pretty cool at any rate 
The last thing we have is Pyrrhus continues to Argos and he discovers that Antigonus, that same powerful leader who will found the dynasty that Antigonus II, this is the son of Demetrius, who will get back on the Macedonian throne and found that dynasty that will last all the way until the Romans conquer Macedonia. Pyrrhus challenges Antigonus to a one-on-one and Antigonus responds that he relies on opportunities and strategy more than arms. Now you might think strategy, isn't that tactics? But no, the word he uses here is strategion, just general ship. But now that both of these kings in leaving Sparta have descended on the plains near Argos, Argos tries to ask them to leave. It's kind of weird. There's a few omens that we don't have time to get into, but I will say if you struggle to read the omens in Plutarch, it's good to read them the way you read epic similes in Homer. This whole life is just a great, you can read it right after you read the Iliad or you can read this and then read the Iliad. The epic similes, though, force you to think metaphorically and to think, what is the eagle? What is the snake? Right? What are they doing? What are they representing? Could they represent anything else? Are there any other ways to read this? And these omens are just weird. <laughs> um, I'll just, like I said, we don't have time for them. But read them on your own. That's your homework. And uh, let me know if you have any questions about the weirdness of the omens. But read them like a metaphor, right? Read them like a metaphor that tells the future instead of a, a metaphor that foreshadows the future rather than a metaphor that describes the present or looks back to the past. Pyrrhus then ends up in a street fight in Argos. He's got a delay because it's hard to get those elephants through the gates, but he gets all of his men in at night because somebody they know inside the city lets them in. But now these armies, Antigonus marches on the city and Pyrrhus enters the city from the east and there's also some Gauls fighting in the city who are mercenaries. And this night battle grows really confused because both men have men on the inside and so now both Antigonus's army and Pyrrhus's army have ended up inside and they're all fighting in an unfamiliar city. So their fortified positions are still occupied by the time dawn breaks, but he then sees a statue that has been that was commissioned in Argos of a bull fighting with a wolf. And he remembers that he had heard an omen that he would die when he saw a bull fighting a wolf. So, here it is. Argos is going to be the place. Pyrrhus attempts to retreat in an orderly way from the city, and he orders his son outside to tear down some of the wall so that they can escape more easily. But the messenger ruins the message, bungles the message, and Helenus, Pyrrhus's second son, marches into Argos with the rest of the army. So, rather than making space for them to retreat, a confusion is created by two ranks of armies running into each other on top of that an elephant falls right in front of the gate i don't know if it's right outside the city or right inside the city and so retreat is just impossible as this elephant flails around and people try to get him back up on his feet at that point many were killing their own soldiers in the confusion and the tumult that ensued so pyrrhus has to fight his way out and so do all of his men The women, as is true in most street battles, have taken to the roofs because that's the last safe place they'll have, but it also gives them the high ground. A woman catches sight of Pyrrhus threatening her son, and so she grabs a roof tile, remember, baked, clay, heavy roof tiles, and she throws it down, hurling it at Pyrrhus's head. She doesn't hit him in the head, 
but she hits him in the neck and she fractures his spine and he loses consciousness and falls down right there. Some of Antigonus's soldiers recognize him, drag him out of the fray. One of them takes out a short sword to cut off his head and claim the victory. But then as he sees Pyrrhus recovering, again, I don't know if this is Pyrrhus's reputation or Pyrrhus's fearsome looks. Pyrrhus must look even worse after being wounded like this and fighting a battle all night. The boy trembles and is only able to cut his head off slowly and poorly. At this point, the son of Antigonus, so it's the grandson of Demetrius, steals the head, brings it to his father, and Antigonus weeps, remembering the many reversals of fortune his father and grandfather had suffered. So that was the story that we'd heard in Demetrius, and Antigonus himself will eventually come to the throne and be called Antigonus II when he solidifies his Macedonian power. But it's going to take a while, and it was not an easy fight. So Antigonus is aware of just how much the wheel of fortune, right? The ups and downs have affected all of these successors of Alexander, and that to be a successor did not guarantee success, even though it's built in as a pun. So Antigonus brings the head and body back together and buries them and discovers that Helenus, the second son, is there attending the funeral. And Antigonus points him out and Antigonus's son offers him better clothes and then sends him back to Epirus. It's an odd ending because we don't get the reflection but we do get how he was treated by his enemies. And that is, his son was treated nobly. But we don't trace his lineage down further, echoing into the centuries. And so either we don't have all this life, or this is where Plutarch thought a good place to end. How you are treated in death and the funeral is often where he will end. But it still felt a little bit abrupt to me. So, We really only had two major themes, political and personal limits, and serving in the capacity where you have been placed. What if Pyrrhus had just decided to be a good king of the Epirotes and the Molossians? The philosopher Cineus provides us with some of this perspective without being too heavy-handed in the middle of the life. The other one is the virtue of justice. There are times and seasons where it seems like some polities care about this virtue more than others. Plutarch would rank this particular season, the Macedonian rule and the Macedonians fighting for Alexander's scraps, as one in which justice reaches a low point. He calls it the virtue of kings, and one philosopher even observes that the Roman Senate acts like an assembly of kings. That seems to be kings in a good way, that is, men who seek justice. But when justice and power are joined, Plutarch sees not only a prosperous state, not even just a stable situation, but a good government promoting virtue in all of its people. This life sets us up so well to enter into the Roman story, which comes next, because Plutarch wants to remind even the Romans of their past virtues and encourage them to live up to those old virtues in the height of their power in the first century AD. That's all we have time for now, and I will see you in a few more months for Season 5 and the Rise of Rome.
Thank you.